Hey, Stats and Stories listeners, this is Rosemary Pennington with a quick note about today's episode. Uh, today's episode features Vicki Hertzberg. Uh, we start the conversation talking about Florence Nightingale. About halfway through, we switch uh, tracks and start talking about the coronavirus. Uh, and I wanted to point out our conversation with Vicki um, was recorded last week before the latest developments, uh, including the quarantine of some 16 million people in Italy. So I wanted to give you a bit of context going into the conversation. Conversation. Uh, thanks for listening. Most people know Florence Nightingale as the founder of modern nursing. She first came to fame while nursing wounded British soldiers during the Crimean War. After the war, she founded what is considered to be the first secular school of nursing in the world, but the lady with the lamp also made significant contributions to the field of statistics. As the 200th anniversary of Nightingale's birth approaches, her statistical work is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former chair of media, journalism, and film. Our guest today is a returning guest, Vicki Hertzberg. Hertzberg is director of the Center for Nursing Data Science at Emory University. Thank you so much for being here again today. Thanks for having me. How did Nightingale's nursing work inform her statistical work? Um, she was very politically astute, and she understood that evidence is very persuasive. And in order to have evidence, you have to have data. Mm -hmm. And that's how she was able to make such an impact in her work in nursing. So I have a question about my own kind of general knowledge of Florence Nightingale. Always knew about her nursing, never knew about her statistics stuff. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why was I that ill-informed about this? Because when you look at her Wikipedia site today, it calls her English social reformer and statistician and founder of modern nursing. That's her line there. Right, right. I think because the focus has been so much on... Uh, uh, nursing, and that the statistics kind of gets uh, shoved aside. So can you just summarize for, for folks that may not have seen this, I mean, like Richard was just describing, mm -hmm. you know, what were some of her statistical kind of contributions to, to the discussions that we were having? Well, she was not really an advanced uh, theoretical statistician, but she was great at uh, accumulating data and thinking of ways in which to visualize it. And one of the one of her inventions is what's called the, the rose plot, which is basically a circular histogram. And she was using that to uh, demonstrate seasonality of death in the Crimean War. And that's, uh, she has a whole treatise on uh, injuries in the Crimean War and uh, contributions to it. And so what's remarkable of that, about that is kind of the, uh, the graphics that she used to display the data. What I loved about this graph, and I don't know, did you know about this graph? This is amazing. 
Because you can look at it just as a general. I mean, this is from the 1850s. You can look at it and see how she made the argument about how, you know, I think her main argument was mortality was being caused by disease, not by wounds in the Crimean War. And it's and then her nursing, I think, tactics uh, really lowered the amount of uh, deaths, I think, uh, from one year to the next. Is that right? Uh, that's right. That's right. And that was a pretty remarkable achievement back when uh, we really didn't know so much about infection. Did now did she this particular what did you call this kind of graph? Did she invent this or was this is this just something she used? Uh, I'm not sure if she invented it or not, but it's it really gained popularity because of her use. Um, she uh, it's I call it a rose plot. Some people yeah. call it a wind rose plot, and it, it's actually one of my favorite graphs. Mine too. <laughs> it's it's really yeah, cool. It's really well, and, and the thing about the production of it at the time. I mean, yeah. this was this was yeah. a serious design project. Vicky, so this feels like perhaps uh, the beginning of nursing data science or a movement towards it. How how do we move from Florence Nightingale producing this beautiful rose plot to you are now the director of a center for nursing data science? What what does that look like, and what what is nursing data science now? Well, it's um, it's a center where we're trying to grapple with the phenomenon of big data mm -hmm. in nursing, in nursing research, in nursing practice, in nursing education. Um, and for a long time in nursing research, um, a big data set was 100 people. Mm. Oh. <laughs> okay. So um, it's uh, really come a long way. Um, and so we're uh, working with um, nursing faculty, with our uh, practitioners at Emory Hospitals um, in determining what are the problems that they have and then how can we best address them using the tools of data science. Mm -hmm. can, can you go into a, a specific example perhaps in practice where you're thinking, you know, what's, what are some of the big data sets that are being used and what type of impact on practice might it have as you understand, as you work with these data? Okay. Well, a colleague of mine has, uh, is in the process of gaining access to some data um, from Medicare mm. um, that's looking at hospitalizations and looking at hospital-acquired infections in those, in those mm. people and kind of looking at how, how that all happens. Um, and that's a huge data set. Um, we have a, a signature project um, at the school called Project NEL. NEL stands for Nursing Electronic Learning Laboratory. And it is a compilation of data from uh, the clinical data warehouse at Emory Healthcare. And so data have all been uh, de-identified um, as per um, uh, standard methods. Uh, and we now have them and are creating a graphical uh, interface so that um, our faculty and students can use them. So what used to do what? Um, questions of their interest. So uh, we had a student who was interested in looking at the costs of care for different kinds of providers 
for uh, people undergoing a procedure called TAVR, T-A-V-R, which has something to do with aortic valve replacement. Or other people who are looking at, say, foot care procedures. Um, I've got a student right now who's looking at what's called the cascade of care in hepatitis C patients in the baby boomer generation. Mm. And so how many people go to get screened uh, to then uh, be tested positive, to be in confirmed, uh, and then on, on and on down the line to finally becoming cured. And so she was able to use the data from the project to do this. I, I have a question that I want to get back to that I think is related to something Richard raised early. So when I was a kid, my dad used to bring home all these books about like famous female figures, right? To sort of say like, you can be whatever you want. And I was obsessed with these biographies of Florence Nightingale and Clara Barton that my dad brought home. Um, I thought I wanted to be a doctor or nurse and grew up and realized I did not because I'm not good around bodily fluids. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember reading those books and was so inspired by them and the fact that these young women, you know, living at this time with, with these, um, you know, less sophisticated technologies were doing these things. But the, the the memory I have of them is sort of of them being these like nursing angels, yes. and not so much sort of the again the scientific sort of thinking that went went behind the work they were doing. And so I wonder if 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 part of the reason we don't know as much about Florence Nightingale's statistical work is that we just don't really broadly as a broad public understand the kinds of works the work that nurses do and the kind of data nurses are collecting. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, when you're sick and in the hospital, you see your physician when they round. Right. Okay. When they're performing a procedure. But you're seeing that in floor nurse um, quite often, you know, that's the person that's going to be there to hold your hand when you die if you don't have anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's so, so important. But for years, um, nursing, um, you know, it was only until the late eight or the late seventies that really nursing began to kind of raise up its level mm -hmm. um, with uh, uh, better credentialing. Um, in the late seventies, uh, accredit accreditation for schools of nursing. Uh, began to um, insist on having uh, numbers of people, uh, faculty with doctoral mm -hmm. degrees. And up until then, typically you could teach with just a master's in nursing. And so at that point, there were really no nursing PhDs uh, programs to go to. So a lot of uh, people, a lot of nursing faculty began to uh, uh, reach out in other areas and got doctoral degrees in anthropology, um, education, mm -hmm. psychology, epidemiology. And it wasn't until probably uh, the late 90s that it kind of a push for doctoral training in nursing specifically uh, really came to catch on. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that, that as a follow-up to, to Rosemary's question, that this idea, this perception of, of that there's treatment at, that physicians are doing that are that, that you think of medical treatments and procedures and research into those procedures or, or research into to pharmaceutical agents that you might be, be having as well. 
it's not as clear, I, I think, to even think about framing a research question for, for people when they first encounter this in nursing research. Could you talk a little bit about a, a nursing research question and how it might be framed and the kind of data that might be gathered to address it? Um, well, we have a, um, a, a NIH-funded center um, to study the microbiome, the metabolomics and the microbiome in multiple chronic conditions and looking at the symptoms that people have. And our particular focus is that um, it's all around hypertension mm -hmm. and the effects of hypertension. Uh, but then we're looking at not only hypertension, but other chronic conditions that might uh, coexist. So it might be obesity and chronic uh, hypertension. It might be HIV and hypertension it might be some cardiovascular disease and hypertension. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at um, these different populations that have all this, uh, this commonality of hypertension. And then we're getting uh, samples so that we can characterize the gut microbiome and also looking at what's going on metabolically um, in these patients and then looking at the relationship of all of this to three different symptoms, and those are anxiety, fatigue, and depression. Hmm. Okay. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Emory University's Vicki Hertzberg. You know, Vicki, there's been a lot of attention right now that's, that's addressed to uh, COVID-19. So we're hearing, oh yeah, you know, oh yeah, we're hearing a, a lot about this. There's a lot of implications of travel. There's implications on behavior. Health promotion issues are are obviously at the forefront of a lot of what we've been discussing. Uh, you talked previously when you joined us about germs on a plane. You know, thinking about the where you were located and and the potential risk of of sort of health outcome, adverse health outcomes. How, how might the work that you did then or, or other things that you've been thinking about in your, your current work provide insights on this current uh, COVID-19 epidemic in ways that, that it might be transmitted in ways that we may prevent um, being, becoming part of this epidemic? Okay. It's all about social distancing for COVID-19 uh, for, for uh, respiratory infections that are spread by large droplets. So large droplets are the things that you kind of spew when you cough or sneeze, or even sometimes when you talk. Um, and those are the ones that pretty much get taken over by gravity very quickly, and they drop to the floor within about a meter of you. And so uh, those are the ones that you have to typically worry about for uh, diseases like influenza, which happens every year, mm -hmm. by the way, um, and is of concern to air travelers. Uh, so in our work, we were trying to figure out, you know, kind of where, where can you cut down on those kinds of exposures? And so in our case, we settled on choosing an aisle seat on an airplane because you cut down the, the people that are in close proximity to you. Um, but it has other implications. For instance, um, I have a colleague who works in uh, emergency medicine, and we were similar. We, before we did the airplane study, I actually worked with him on doing a similar type of study in the emergency room. Hmm. And so it has implications for, say, how you, how you seat people in the waiting room in the oh. emergency room. Yeah. 
um, and how you move them around, etc. Uh, what we found there was actually that it's it's not so much the sick patient that you have to worry about, but it's actually a sick staff member that comes in, oh. and and they spend a lot of time with other staff members, and so um, that's uh, actually trying to re-engineer spaces um, at their work areas because they really don't uh, in this particular uh, emergency room. There were actual uh, uh, exam rooms with doors and and walls, and so um, the amount of time that a provider or a nurse or an administrative person would be in those rooms would be relatively short, and then they go back to their work areas where they're working very much more closely together, mm -hmm. um, and they spend a lot of time there. Um, and so that's where really where you have the risk of spreading something. Um, both studies were motivated by this uh, SARS, another coronavirus. Um, in the case of the emergency room, uh, the first case that flew back to Canada, uh, to Toronto, Canada, um, was a woman who came in from Beijing and her son cared for her. And uh, she died and he got sick and he went to a busy, a community hospital to their emergency department. He was stuck in a hall waiting for a bed assignment uh, for hours. Oh. And um, as a result of that exposure, as well as just him being in the hospital, there were something like 120 other uh, either direct transmissions or later indirect transmissions because of exposures to those direct transmissions that came down with SARS, some of whom died, some of whom were staff, et cetera. And so that was really my colleague's uh, motivation for this. Uh, similarly, um, when the SARS epidemic um, came, uh, just like we're seeing now, airline business slowed down. Mm -hmm. One of the airlines in Canada, I believe, uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe had to um, either came close to or actually went underwent bankruptcy uh, reorganization. And in those circumstances, airlines aren't buying airplanes. And so um, a colleague of mine at Georgia Tech uh, knew about the work I'd been doing in the emergency room, and he had been approached by the Boeing company. The Boeing company is in the business of selling airplanes. And if people are worried about getting sick on airplanes, uh, and they're not flying, then Boeing's not going to be able to sell their product. Mm -hmm. And so they funded us to do the germs on a plane study as well. Um, it's had some implications for them to kind of rethink some of their cabin design, for instance, and their ventilation, in addition to just seating. Mm -hmm. So, Vicki, this morning in the New York Times, there was a story that uh, the airlines are worrying they they may lose up to $100 million if this epidemic gets really big. Do you have any sort of practical advice? I know my wife and I just, she just wanted to cancel a flight to that we were going to go visit relatives in Arizona. So at this stage of this epidemic, how would you advise people just sort of flying domestically in the United States from what you know? Uh, from what I know, I'm not canceling any planned trips, okay, uh, on the basis of concerns about coronavirus. 
and I would not advise anybody to do that unless they were planning to travel to China, Iran, or Italy, mm -hmm. uh, Korea, Japan, where there are big outbreaks. But so far, there's, you know, how many million people in the United States? 300, Over 300, 300 million people mm -hmm. in the United Something States. Like how many people have been infected with coronavirus so far in the U.S.? It's really a very, very infinitesimally small probability that you're going to come into contact with somebody on an airplane. One of the things I've been struggling with, Vicki, as I've been reading about COVID-19, is that flu, flu takes down thousands of people every year, and thousands of people have died every year of flu. And, and it seems like we can't get people to get flu vaccines. <laughs> and then there's the coronavirus, which certainly seems bad in, in a handful of countries, but it, it feels to me that the response, it, it, it's hard to know how much of the response I'm seeing is an overreaction to a disease that people don't understand really well yet, and how much is like, yes, do, so we can fly, you just said, but what are there other precautions that are being sort of pushed out there that you think are advisable, or, or how, would you, how would you suggest someone who is consuming all this information about coronavirus uh, and COVID-19 navigate all of this information, right? Well, the WHO and the CDC have uh, very good websites uh, for people to consult as this uh, problem evolves, and it will evolve. I agree, influenza is a concern. So a lot of these uh, public health measures that we're talking about, social distancing, washing your hands, mm -hmm. don't touch your face, get your vaccine. Those are applicable year after year after year. Mm -hmm. I think with COVID-19, it was scary because um, initially there was so much of it in one city yeah. and 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 nobody kind of knew and it was uh, a pretty scary disease. But as they've begun to, uh, especially the Chinese, as they've begun to get in, you know, get people under ventilators mm -hmm. or getting them on ECMO, that uh, that the mortality rates have, have gone down a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was what was initially so terrifying. Yeah. We don't have a vaccine for coronavirus that I'm aware of. Right. Um, and so, and, and, and it will be a couple of years before we have an effective vaccine against this particular right. uh, virus. So some of these other travel things have been done, I think, for other reasons. Um, I know that the American Physical so Physics Society yeah. canceled its big meeting in Denver uh, earlier this week. So it was supposed to start on Monday, and it was canceled on Sunday. Mm. And that was really because they were expecting a lot of international mm -hmm. attendees from countries such as Iran, Italy, Korea, etc. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, and uh, did not want that exposure. Um, but on the other hand, I have another colleague who was scheduled to go to Rwanda next week. Um, and that trip has been canceled because they don't want to get stuck. You know, uh, okay, so they don't want to get stuck in a quarantine situation for two weeks. Um, here at Emory, they've uh, banned all business travel uh, to uh, those countries um, for the time being. Mm -hmm. And anybody returning um, has to self-quarantine for 14 days. 
So one thing that you've talked about when, when we were, we've chatted before, previously was was the idea of other transfers. Uh, you, you talk about the social distance for some of the infections spread by large droplets, but but you've talked about some indirect transfer risks as well. Is that something that's been commented on with COVID nineteen? And and what is what is this indirect transfer, and how might that might we prevent our exposure through indirect transfer? Um, it's when um, the virus or the 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 particles that carry it land somehow on an a physical object and that so for instance i cough or sneeze into my hand i leave the room and i use the doorknob to shut the door and then a few hours later you come into the room and you touch your hand, you take your hand, you touch the doorknob and twist it to open, and then you somehow touch your face, thereby transferring virions that are still alive on that surface into your mucosal areas of your face, and that's how the virus enters the body. I have heard that the virus is um, alive on surfaces. I do know that other viruses can uh, survive on surfaces for um, hours, um, and it's really dependent upon the type of surface. So I, I shouldn't take back this pen I just loaned Richard? <laughs> <laughs> I was just sitting here I, thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I don't I want think, that pen back, I think man. I'm going to get a pen here. <laughs> he just sold. <laughs> oh, so, but if you're on an airplane, for instance, you might want to think about uh besides observing good hand hygiene, is when you're touching that video pad that's in the mm, seat okay. back in front of you, perhaps covering your finger with a tissue mm. to do that touching. When you're in the lavatory and you've washed your hands and you're ready to uh, exit, use a paper towel to open the door mm. and then throw it away so that you're uh, kind of trying to preserve that hand hygiene as much as you can. Nothing makes you realize how much you touch your face, like being told to don't touch don't your face. face. <laughs> 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 well, Vicki, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to Stats and Stories. Uh, I'm going to start that over again. I completely lost my train of thought. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.